Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here with Mike in the podcast studio, safely socially distancing across two tables, a two-table distance between us. As we continue our COVID-19 online learning sessions, this podcast session is for Theology 442, History of the Reformations. This is likely, depending on how we do with time and stand task, likely the last podcast session for Theology 442. Um, Then we'll have uh, maybe only one or maybe a few for 110. Um, Mike, I think you said you did one for 105. Yeah, kind but, of a, re- a review. But for our listeners, you're getting towards the end of being bombarded um, <laughs> with these. And, and we're going to have to come up with some episode ideas, Mike, for just regular episodes. Um, to have I, we, we do have one in the hopper that, that Amy Herman, Dr. Hermanson did, but I yeah. don't know why. Is Peter jealous of her, his wife? He's not producing it? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think he just knows I'm producing all these now, and <laughs> maybe if he waits out tries to wait it out, that, that I will do it. Um, I will say for our listeners, not necessarily for our students, but students feel free to, to do what you want. Um, if you found these helpful listeners, um, it's been a long time since we've reminded you, but um, please do uh, you know subscribe, share on social media, uh, help us expand the, uh, the conversation as we like to put it. Um, review us on, on iTunes, or not iTunes, whatever you call that, the Apple Podcasts. Um, but that is really uh, helpful to us. Um, we're hoping that we've put out a fair amount with these podcast sessions that first and foremost were helpful for our students, but also that a, a number of other people will find helpful as they kind of get to sit in for free to kind of audit some of our discussions for our college classes. And so um, we hope people will kind of help spread the word about about it so that uh, people can more people can, can find them helpful. So rate, review, subscribe, share. All that, we greatly appreciate it. We are on Facebook and Twitter and, and all that. We're even on Instagram, but I, st- I don't really know how to use Instagram well enough to to do much with it. So I think we've got like a picture of Dr. Brown on there. Um, probably not a, a lot else. Um, but I can, I'll can i try to learn that better as we, as we go. So we're going to be talking about the second half of my book, An Uncompromising Gospel, which is the last book that we use for Theology 442. We've done one podcast session on it so far, so if you want to go back and listen to that one first, that is, uh, well, students, you just should do that. For listeners, you don't have to do that, but it, um, it might be helpful. But uh, what we're going to be focusing on is the identity crises, um, as I call them. Uh, some scholars have called it, for instance, the culture of controversy and stuff like that. Um, but the identity, a few of the identity crises that break out after Luther's death and have to do with themes that were in the Heidelberg Disputation and the bondage of the will, um, and that lead to uh, important articles or statements in the Formula of Concord, the last Lutheran confession. And then the, the lessons um, from the uh, identity crises or the culture of conflict are, uh, I think they need less explanation from us, Mike. They're pretty straightforward. So students should just be reading that and then taking notes. Um, the three parts that students are reading and taking notes on are, are broken down into the three parts of the book. Um, first, the uh, um, Luther's uncompromising gospel. Second, Lutheranism's identity crisis. And third, lessons from the culture of conflict. So maybe, uh, Mike, I probably should have asked you this before we hit record, but we got a little distracted talking about how much money our kids cost us. So um, why are we okay with just taking the controversies in the order that they are in I the book? I think so. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> 
Ideophoristic controversy. Uh, this is the one where we're in my wheelhouse. This is what I, um, my primary field of research um, as a historian and theologian. And this is a controversy that breaks out uh, just a little background for our listeners. For most of these, I'm not going to bore you with, with a bunch of dates and names. I want to get at the big ideas that are involved. But Luther dies. The Schmalkaldic League, which was a defensive alliance among Lutheran territories, is defeated at, at Milburg in um, 1547. Luther dies in 46. And the emperor, Charles V, who, uh, who wants to re-Catholicize Protestant Germany, introduces uh, laws uh, in what is called the Augsburg Interim. Uh, so this is sometimes called the Interim Controversy as well. Uh, that are meant to bring the Protestant churches more towards Roman Catholicism. Um, so there's an article on justification that is ambiguous um, and not a clear statement of salvation by grace alone. But there's also a lot that pertain to the worship life of the churches. And this controversy is very important because it shows the relationship between doctrine and practice. <clears throat> and what becomes emblematic of it um, is a vestment um, that was called a chorak or a surplus. So students, if you have the book, um, Mike, can you look on page 51 in your book? I know you have the first edition of the book. I have the second. So I have the black cover. Mike has the white cover. It is on 51. <clears throat> okay. On page 51, you can see a picture of um, that vestment. And so my dissertation... Or I wear one in chapel. <laughs> yes, Mike wears one in chapel. <laughs> I was going to get thing. there. And uh, um, But this... Uh, the, the image is where I got my the, the name of my dissertation that was published as a book, The Devil Behind the Surplus. Um, and, and you can see this vestment was reintroduced. Now, this vestment was still being worn in some Lutheran territories, but in others they had moved away from it. And this vestment became symbolic of the state mandating the church doing something that hadn't come from the church. Um, there were other ceremonies connected with this. So it wasn't all about a vestment. Uh, but there were some, uh, especially uh, Matthias Flatius Illyricus um, and and other Genesio, what means genuine sure, Lutherans, yeah. um, especially centered in Magdeburg in Germany, uh, who said uh, something is no longer an adiaphron, it's no longer indifferent, uh, when it's commanded or in a time of controversy, right? So it, they saw this as an attack on Christian freedom. Now, that being said, Mike wears a surplus in chapel. My pastor wears a surplus. Um, I don't wear one simply because cassocks I find to be not built for fat people, right? <laughs> and all is much better for fat men. Um, Many Missouri Synod Lutherans wear cassock and surplus, and there's absolutely no issue with it. Uh, the issue was if this is commanded in a time of controversy, and if it's connected with a political or religious agenda um, that is attacking key teachings of the gospel, can something s still be an adiaphoron? It's an adiaphoron. If it's multiple things, it's adiaphora. Now, Adiaphora is an interesting word because, in my uh, experience, almost all Wells Lutherans know it, <laughs> right? 
Um, but it almost only ever gets used when someone just wants to do what they want to do and without they, being questioned. They know how to play the card. It's like a Monopoly card, um, get out of jail free, mm-hmm. except it's the, the Adiaphora card. And so um, it's interesting that the first big controversy that comes out of this, which leads to all the other controversies, and which reveals the fault lines among Luther's followers that had probably been there already before Luther's death, but he holds things together. He dies, and these are revealed now, is going to be this adiaphoristic controversy. There, um, Melanchthon opposes the Augsburg interim, uh, but then he participates in the crafting of what uh, was called the Leipzig Proposal, which was meant to tone down the Augsburg interim. There's a lot of politics that go into this that we won't get into all that now. Um, Flatius is going to, or Flacius, as most Welsh people say, um, is going to term this, uh, a propaganda feat of calling this the Leipzig interim. Um, and so the Magdeburgers and others are going to campaign against this too um, because they, in the doctrine of justification, is not very good in the Leipzig interim either. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that it, worship becomes a focal point for this, especially in our day and age where oftentimes worship is just looked at as being totally free and, and rather inconsequential um, so long as you have the right statement of faith. And so I'm going to throw it to you, Mike, in here in just a second, but in a very specific way I'm going to ask you to, to see what connections you make here. Um, understanding this controversy, and the formula of Concord is going to side with Flacius in the end and say it's going to even use his phrase that nothing is an adiaphron or indifferent matter in a, 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 sta- a state of confession or of controversy. Statue of confession, yeah. Yeah. Um, We have a on campus here, uh, Theology of Christian Worship. Is that the title of the course mm-hmm. or just Christian Worship? Christian Worship. Theology of Christian Worship, yeah. Theology of Christian Worship. And it's a, an interesting class, and it's a, it's a popular class. Um, and a lot of the comments I get from students, I, I don't like hearing compliments about Mike, and so I usually try to discourage <laughs> them. Um, but what I will often have students tell me if they've, you know, they, they say come up and say, I, you know, I enjoyed Dr. Berg's class. They know we're friends, and... I would say we make fun of each other in the classroom a little bit, so they know there's a good back and forth. Um, but uh, what is usually I do like hearing uh, is that they hadn't thought about the everything that goes into worship before, the theology of why we do what we do. And these are not always Lutheran students who, who say this. Sometimes it's a Roman Catholic or a Baptist student who says, you know, I understand better why my church does what it does and how that connects to belief. And so the first part of the adiaphora notion thing I'd like to, to get at, and then remind me to come back to church and state, Mike. Um, but the, this is the question for you. Um, and it doesn't have to be rooted simply in the, in the historical event that is, is spurring this. Um, but maybe if you could just unpack a little bit for us, what do you find to be important for people to understand or what do you think is maybe underappreciated in in 21st century american christianity uh in the the connection between doctrine and practice and the idea that worship isn't just something we do but there's a theology behind it yeah so uh some of our listeners will be um familiar with this small little latin phrase it comes from a bigger latin phrase but lex orandi lex credendi and that is the rule of Prayer is the rule of faith, and basically what it means is this, that the way you worship 
prayer. What you do is going to affect what you believe and vice versa. What you believe is going to affect what you do. And I argue right from the beginning that that is not, that is not debatable. <laughs> like that's just how life is, right? So this is, this is what we call first philosophy, right? This is, this is not Lutheran's bad, uh, Roman Catholic's good. This is not Lutheran's good. This is just a fact of life. And I draw to the idea that we are both body and, and soul. And so what I do physically affects the soul and vice versa. And if I can try to convince myself as pietists will often do that only, uh, the spiritual matter and the physical doesn't matter. You, you have lost touch with reality regardless of your confession. And the, the opposite is true too, that if I can just go through the motions and somehow this is just a magical thing, it's just a physical kind of thing and not has to do with what I believe, you have made the same mistake in the opposite direction. And so I try to lead them in their everyday life, right? What you wear matters. Um, you, a lot of say, a and lot of- a lot of students, right? If they think that through, that makes sense because- they choose clothes that represents who they think they are, yeah. right? Their, their style. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, say how many of you came here because of the aesthetics of WLC or the dorm room was nice and all this kind of, this stuff matters. Right. And, and to embrace that and to say, this can be abused, but this can also be just absolutely fantastic. That's something that it, I think is the fullness of, of the Christian theology born out in worship, but also in the fullness of your life. Um, if you think about these things and also to say what you do matters to other people and you don't get to, to decide that. So I may say, it, it, you know, it doesn't matter what I wear. And so I'm going to come and teach class. I don't say this, but I'm going to teach class in a speedo. Well, it doesn't matter. And, and, and shame on you students for being distracted by that and making fun of me. Can but, I come to that class yes, and you make can. fun of you too? But the reality is I don't get to decide what goes through their mind when they see me. I don't get to do that. And so it does matter what you do in the church. You can't say it doesn't matter. And you don't get to decide what somebody else says matters or not. Right? And this gets at this notion of um, most people, when you ask them what an Ani Afran is, um, it, they're not wrong. A, a definition, very legalistic way of looking right, at it. Yeah. A definition commonly used is something either commanded nor forbidden. Um, but that is not comprehensive. Mm -hmm. The word itself uh, means an indifferent thing. Melanchthon kind of gets this word from the Stoics and the German. It's middle dinger, right? It's a middle thing. It's um, so it's an indifferent thing. So it's not only not commanded or forbidden, but it actually it doesn't have baggage. Mm -hmm that is detrimental to the gospel or distracting or scandalous. Um, and that part we sometimes it forget. It's not neutral. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, Felicius will say it should be, it should serve for edification. Mm -hmm. It ought not, our confessions say they not, ought not be frivolous or mm -hmm. trivialities. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think just to reinforce what, what Mike's getting at there, indifferent does not, it's not a free for all. Mm -hmm. um, it's, our synod president had a paper once, and he put it very well, and I've, I've quoted that, I believe, in this book. Um, saying something is an adiaphron is not where the discussion ends. It's where it begins. Yeah. Okay. And, and let, me, let me finish that out, and then I'll kick it back to you. So the next thing I say usually in the class is, 
So really all I can do is kind of teach you. I can teach why I wear a cassock surplus. Now I'm, it's still going to be an Adi offering in the set in the sense that I am going to say the guy who, who wears the whatever, or is in street clothes and preaches the gospel. I say, praise be to God. I don't say I, 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 we can have a discussion about that. And that way it's an Adi offering, right? And you probably at some point talk about how I dress irresponsibly. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll go like Dr. Johnson, right? Um, and, and there's three options here. And again, this is first philosophy. There's really no debating this. There's three options. One is you go through the motions and you don't teach it, which we usually say, oh, that's, that's Roman Catholicism. I'm like, no, nah, that's us too. Right. That's like everybody. Um, it's the people fighting for the whatever hymnal in whatever denomination and have no idea why they sing the Sanctus when they sing it. They just know that things are changing. The second object option is I think an impossibility, but I'm still going to put it as something that's maybe, maybe, maybe plausible. And that is you have no right, no ritual, only teaching. Now, the reason I say that's impossible is even if you sat around in an empty room with bare walls, that would be your ritual and right. would say something. But then there is the sweet spot, and that is you do ritual and you teach. And the best you can do is you can say, this is why we do these things and explain the best way you can. It's not always going to be helpful. You can't change someone's mind always, but you certainly can try to do that. So, yeah, and I think if you go through those steps, not just we're talking worship here, but talk about anything, you know, like, should I have a beer? Well, who are you with? Are you with your alcoholic Uncle Frank? Or are you in with your case, friends? You're in for a fun night. <laughs> right. So there's the law of love, all this. So I would say, you know, when I say if you are thinking about all of these things, you probably will come to conclusion before you have to play the adiaphra card. And now, when it comes to this flacious thing uh, and the, the devil behind the surplus, which is awesome. I love that because I wear a surplus. Mike has a picture that he's posted on my bulletin board of... Yeah, wherever happened to that? Isn't it still up? I don't think so. There's a picture of me in the surplus superimposed over your book title yeah. that says the devil behind the surplus. Um, I don't think I took it. <clears throat> I don't know. So when the state in particular, my goodness mandates something so that the 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 emperor can you know and and two sides can come together and we can come to this oh we're not going to fight over religion anymore and pretend like these doctrines don't matter of course the surplus doesn't matter of course it doesn't but when it becomes a demand from somebody else so we had we had a professor uh, professor kuski who said if you're you know the baptist preacher next door says you're not allowed to have a beer then you crack open a beer in front of them Right. right. I mean, that, that was his example of that for, to assert your freedom in a certain way, but <clears throat> there's more to it when you talk about the state intervening in these situations. And I think that's where you want to go. Yeah. So this will be uh, an important development regarding church and state. And, and there'll be more about this and the devil behind the surplus than there is an uncompromising gospel. But the, the, the driving force here is the state saying you have to practice this. And it wasn't just, um, uh, the vestments, it was liturgical rites. Um, it, it, there was a number of things relating to the, the parish life um, that were involved in these interims or proposals or laws. I mean, there's different ways we can we can phrase this. Uh, 
And so we don't want to lose sight of that. But notice then the first debate then is about Christian freedom. Now you might think, well, if they're saying you shouldn't wear this vestment, are they limiting Christian freedom? No, because they don't care if you wear the vestment or not mm-hmm. normally. It's about Christian freedom that uh, the state or even the church ought not mandate things that God himself has not commanded. Now, that is not to say there can be no rules in the church. We have rules in the church. Worship is at 10 Mm a.m. Well, I could say, well, in Christian freedom, I'm going to worship at 11 a.m. Well, if we're going to come together, we have to have Mm -hmm. some rules. Um, Just legally, we have to have a church constitution. And that'll say there can be this many council members, perhaps, or, um, you know, this is how often there will be meetings. But these are not uh, things that are uh, commanded as part of an agenda uh, against the church or that are meant to distract from or undermine the key teachings of the of the church. Um, I don't want to go too long on the Adiaphysic controversy because I could talk about this one all day. Um but anything you have as we wrap that part up. And of course, the basic theology behind this is if you're going to say you got to do this in order to be a part of the church is almost akin to saying you need to do this so that you're going to be saved. And we're right back into St. Paul's letter to the, Gal- the Galatians, yeah. right? You are free in these things. How dare you say somebody else is do this? Then you're in a work righteousness situation. That's bad. On the other hand, out of love for the weak brother, we are willing to be patient, maybe even bend over backwards. But the emperor is not a weak brother, right? right. And uh, the the ones who capitulated from the Lutheran side are not weak brothers. They needed to be shown, and so this was a this was a protest. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, the next controversy is the synergistic controversy over free will, and this controversy, just briefly, as far as background is going to develop in the university um, in a debate over uh, the role of free will in salvation. Um, This had been a growing point of tension. Um, For instance, Melanchthon had always been somewhat uncomfortable with Luther's uh, bondage of the will. Uh, But this is is going to be uh, an academic debate. But the the consequences of it are anything but academic. Uh, and so basically what this is is going to get at, this debate over free will, is to what extent is man's will free in conversion, or does it play a role? And here, um, Melanchthon had kind of moved on this. And this is not sometimes the position uh, of those who sympathized with Melanchthon uh, gets confused with his own position. So I don't want to do that. Sometimes you'll hear people referred to as Philippists, right? Well, that doesn't mean Philip Melanchthon held every position they hold. But he had included three causes um, of self, of conversion um, in his revised Lotzi of 1543. Now, students in Romans read the 1521 Lotzi in my Romans class, so they're familiar with it somewhat. But those three were the Holy Spirit moving the heart, the voice of God, and the human will which assents to divine voice. Now, this is not decision theology per se. It's not meant to be. But it does introduce the will. Um, And this is something that a man named Pfeffinger is going to uh, end up defending uh, this emphasis or position 
um, as he's defending in 1555 the Leipzig's interim language uh, that it, as it had talked about the, the will. Uh, and when someone talks about the will cooperating or doing something in conversion, uh, the, the term in theology that will often be used is synergism, right? Ergo in Greek, it, the idea is work. Mm-hmm. Uh, sin is with. So businesses in America like to talk about synergy. synergy. It's we're, energy that was together, yeah. Yeah, we're working together. And so um, when you see that word synergy or, or, or synergism, that is, or synergistic, it's talking about if the role, the will plays a role in conversion. And the Genesio Lutherans, Flatius, uh, Armstrong, and others, are going to emphasize what Luther said in the Heidelberg Disputation, and in Bodge of the Will, that the human will has only a passive capacity in conversion, that it simply receives, it does not do something. Um, and so this will be a very important uh, um, discussion that will take place. It's not... Um, it's not like this is all just one university internal faculty, you know, discussion. It's not, but it's academics, right? This yeah. is, um, it's the adiaphoristic controversy involved what people would have seen when they showed up to church on Sunday. Um, this is theologians fighting, but it would have implications for how people preach. Yeah, It would influence what you think you're doing in preaching. Um, so the synergistic controversy has to do with what does the, the will do in conversion and what comes out of that or the next one relates to it makes a lot of sense how and why it does. But the main point that I include this one in here is because it's very much connected to the debate about original sin that will develop because it flows directly out of this. But anything on the synergistic controversy? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of put your mind into it on a very low level, you, if you hear, well, I have a bound will and then God, God saves me. Well, what does the will then do? And, and you're like, well, certainly I do the believing, right? It's not like God does the believing. I do the believing. And doesn't that have to do with my my will? I, I mean, my, my soul, I, that I'm doing it. And so Luther says, yes, but you are passive in this in a certain sense. Um, and and then Melanchthon says, you know, maybe to to to... To hint that it's a cause <laughs> is a problem, right? That the will is a cause of that. Um, and that's when the camel gets its nose into the tent, right. as we say, right? So now we also understand that post-justification in our sanctified lives, who we are now and righteous, talk about synergism all you want. In fact, I think we probably don't talk about that enough, that we are God's co-workers, that he elevates us up in vocation enough. So we have no problem in sanctification. Say, yeah, you are co-worker with God, but notice that has nothing to do with your value. That always has to do with your neighbor, right? right? And that, that God is working through you. Yeah, right. And so then, yeah, we have no problem with that. It, and I think that's that's a a good line to remember, at least it's helpful for me on the basics of understanding this doctrine and this particular controversy. The next one um, we won't spend too long on, but it's an important one, is the majoristic controversy over good works. And the reason I won't spend too long on it is that uh, pretty much everyone unites to disagree with major at the end of things. But major also is trying to defend some of the language of the Leipzig proposal or interim and he specifically is trying to defend a certain proposition um, that had been uh, tossed around uh, that good works are necessary for salvation. Uh, and so we've seen a debate over Christian freedom. 
We've seen a debate over free will, and now we see a debate over the role of good works. And if you think back to the Heidelberg Disputation that we talked about, Luther's very clear on this, thesis one, right? Um, and so here we can maybe drive home an important distinction within Christian theology. Uh, good works are necessary. That is a true statement. Because God commands them, they're necessary. Because living faith will produce fruits, they are necessary. Right? They, they're going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes this phrase problematic is to say good works are necessary for salvation. Now, interestingly, this is also going to lead um, Amsdorf, who is also uh, kind of a theological hero of mine, but this is going to lead him to say something he shouldn't have said. In response, he's going to say no good works are detrimental to salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, that can be understood correctly in a, in a, in a reading of the Heidelberg yeah. Disputation. Um, but imagine how that sounds to lay people, mm-hmm. right? That can be very confusing. What he means, though, is if you're doing good works to be saved, then that's detrimental to your salvation. But you would think Luther, you know, has uh, basically, I mean, if we if we start with 1517 on, uh, almost 30, a 30-year 30 run in Wittenberg of teaching the gospel, you would think, Fight over good works? Not. Nah, it's impossible. <laughs> um, even Melanchthon is going to eventually kind of speak out against Major. Um, but we see a fundamental debate then taking place again. Are good works necessary for my salvation? Now notice on each of these issues, we're going to end up with articles or portions of articles in the Formula of Conquer that's going to deal with this. And this is how we can talk about, I, I think it was in the, was it the previous podcast session or this one? Um, that we can talk about not an evolution of doctrine, but a process of clarifying doctrine. Mm-hmm. And we'll see how it gets to, to the point that articles need to be presented on these issues. Um, and so another fundamental issue, the issue of good works. And this is one, again, that notice the view you take of it will very much impact how you preach. Um, are you going to berate people into good works or guilt them into good works? Or are you simply going to preach the gospel and then set your neighbor before um, your people, right? Here is your neighbor's need. Here is your neighbor's need. Um, And this is not to be against the law, right? The law is very good at showing me what my neighbor needs. Um, But am I going to use the law to that end? Or am I going to revert to the law and scare people? You're not saved without these good works. Um, and, And therefore undermine what are truly good works. Um, whatever does not proceed from faith, as Paul says, is is sin. Um, I don't know how well I explained that, Mike, but anything you have on the... Uh, just, I mean, just quickly to say, yeah, good works are necessary because they are going to happen. And by the way, God says they're going to happen. Right. And when God says something, it comes true. And so that that is the point of preaching is... You know, if I if I'm gonna if I fall in the synergistic uh, trap that we talked about before, then my sermon is going to try to get people to work their salvation uh, instead of declaring the gospel. And if I uh, fall in the trap of of major, then I'm going to say you got to do these works to prove either to yourself or to God that you are saved, or this is necessary for your salvation. So we say they're necessary in the sense that, yeah, if I look at this thing from the outside of salvation. That is going to result in in good works. Yes, this is necessary for the package. But that step one, being saved by Christ, that is not necessary for me to have good works. And then 
and so Luther is going to say, in fact, those good works can be terrible because they can work against your salvation if you trust in them. Um, and Amsdorfer seems to repeat that idea, but um, we don't want to say that good works in and of themselves are detrimental. In most cases, for the Christian, they are just the natural fruit of salvation. And that, I think, can take us to the next one. Um, what are we at time-wise now, Mike? We said we might go long on this one. Since 32. It's covering two. Okay, so we got, we're fine. Um, since this is covering two class sessions and students can break it up how they want. And we're kind of bringing the lessons right into this section, so combining the two sections. The Oziandrian controversy over justification. <clears throat> um, Andreas Oziander had been a ally of Luther's. Uh, Andreas Oziander had taken a rather courageous stand against the interims, um, which had, it cost him. He has to... Uh, to, to leave Nuremberg where he had been a mainstay because of that. But when Luther dies, Oziander feels emboldened to disagree with Luther on what was basically the central tenet or doctrine of Luther's Reformation, which is justification by grace through faith. And specifically what he does is he rejects Luther's teaching of forensic justification and he teaches an infused justification or righteousness. Now, that might be a, an oversimplification of what he's teaching, but it's really hard to nail down exactly what Oziander was, was trying to say here. Um, he isn't always the most clear on it. But maybe, Mike, I'll throw it to you real quick. If I say he rejected a forensic justification, how would you explain to someone what we mean when we we, we both teach forensic justification? Yeah. It's central to... Um, to both of our fields, mm -hmm. what we do, what does that mean that it's forensic? Forensic, think your forensics high school class. Think uh, forensics on TV. Think legal, right? And so when we mean forensic, we mean a speech act, a declaration that says God declares you not guilty, right? And so uh, even the word justification, we can kind of talk about that as a courtroom scene, justification meaning that I'm justified, I'm declared not guilty because my lawyer stood up and said, I'll take on the sin, give me give my perfect life to my client and the, the, the prosecutor, who by the way is the devil, right. um, uh, doesn't, doesn't get, his, get, get his way even though he has all the evidence against us. Now, we do need to be careful in the West, we tend to be very much about forensic and, and kind of ignore the idea that we... Um, we do teach a mystical union that yeah, we don't talk about often. And, and, and also understand, when we talk about salvation, these are all, there's different pictures that are used, and that's okay, right? And each of them highlights a different thing, but they're all, they're all true. And so, um, does God just declare me righteous, or does he make me righteous? Yes, <laughs> right. Because now, and in Lutheranism, we tend to speak of that in terms of justification and sanctification. Yeah. And so, I would say, if if I'm thinking about God, if I, if I'm going to sit there and say, "Well, now I'm justified, now I'm perfect, and I can do whatever I want," no, I am declared not guilty. I'm usually the one who says yeah. that, though, not Mike. Yeah. And so we can. I mean, Saint Paul says this right too. Uh, I, in a roundabout way, he says, "You know, I'm justified, but I'm not innocent." Right. Because of the symbol. At the same time, the saint part of me is not just this fraud, actually is somebody who is righteous. And so we do need to be careful about, but that was a long way of describing what we mean by forensic. No, and it was very helpful, Mike, and I appreciate it. And so as, as we speak of forensic justification, righteousness then is external to me. 
It's Christ's righteousness that's mm-hmm. declared to be my own, that is imputed to me. It's supposed to be my own. It is, to use a very Pauline way of saying it, credited to me mm-hmm. as righteousness. Where Oziander goes that is, is dangerous is he makes this righteousness an internal righteousness. It's an infused. And so he emphasizes Christ dwelling in us in faith. Now, Christ does dwell in us in, through faith. This is a biblical doctrine. But as Lutherans, we would say that as a result of our justification, that is not our justification. Um, and, and, and so what, what Oziander does is he loses the external righteousness, the verdict of God, and it becomes an internal thing, which is to point people back inside. Um, and it is to imbue the human being with spiritual capacities that he or she does not have um, prior to faith and does not have perfectly even um, in faith this side of the, the casket. So I have a line in here that's still a line. It's one of my favorite lines I, I, I got to write. Um, and I, I say basically, um, in so doing, in his teaching, Oziander managed to do something no one else had been able to do at the time. He united the disciples of Melanchthon and Flacius, at least in disagreement with his teaching. <laughs> um, everyone is going to kind of come together and agree that Oziander is wrong. Um, he's still going to hold to his position. Um, but uh, this will be, uh, it, it won't really take hold in Lutheranism, and I would say thankfully so. So I, I think, Mike, you did something very helpful there. Um, this is not to say there's no mystical union or that Christ is not dwelling us through faith or that there's not stuff go- that God is doing in us and for us and through us, um, but it is simply to point out the danger of connecting our justification with that. Um, there's definitely something to it in the sense of, even when we talk about justification and sanctification, I think in synodical conference circles, we often talk about it as justification and sanctification, two separate categories, two separate things, and we usually mean sanctification in the narrow mm-hmm. sense. But, but even we, we have to remember, even then, sanctification in a broad sense is used in the Bible to kind of in, in, encapsulate all that God has done for us in justifying and saving us. The whole right? package. Yeah. So, you know, there's not always as clean distinctions as we might want to make. Um, Schwenkfeld's debate over Scripture, I'm just going to quickly hit on this, and then I'll let Mike throw in anything he wants. Schwenkfeld, not a Lutheran. He tried to make some inroads with Lutheranism. He had reached out to Luther about his, this great idea he had for small group Bible studies, um, as we might call them today. Um, but he ends up becoming what we might call like a, a proto-Quaker maybe even, an emphasis kind of on this inner light um, that Scripture, that, that we go to Scripture and then God speaks to us in a way that isn't necessarily completely um, bound to the language that God has used. Um, but uh, we're going to kind of go and, and find our interpretation of it. What he basically does then is subjectivizes Scripture. Um, and in this way, he's a, a great forerunner of how people talk about hermeneutics today. Um, how often don't we hear, well, what's your interpretation of this? Or that's your interpretation, but but not mine. Or that's your truth, but not my truth. And uh, Flacius especially is going to be very active um, in working uh, against uh, this, uh, this notion of a... Uh, subjectified spiritual spirit versus the letter kind of thing. Right. Um, and so I don't know if I have it in there. Uh, but Flacius has a great line at one point where he says, uh, 
Oh, here it is. Um, he says, spiritual exegesis fits scripture like a fist fits into yeah. an eye. Uh, that this just doesn't work well. And this is connected to a bound will, original sin. Right. That somehow... Somehow the body, the bodies, how that formalism is bad, but inside all of us is something that can, that is right and good. Right. right? And I can stand over the text yeah, yeah. rather than standing under it and the text doing itself to me. Um, the last big controversy is going to be the one about original sin. And this one too, Mike, you'll have to keep me from talking about forever because this is one I have a big interest in too. Um, because my boy Flacius um, gets uh, condemned on this one. Um, I think he's often misrepresented when his position is presented today, um, but he did definitely misspeak. Like, like Amsdorf, he made a boo-boo. Right, and the same as Melanchthon often gets misrepresented in what he was actually saying too. But this debate comes out of the debate over free will. That led to a debate over original sin. And this is also going to be a university debate. Um, the the synergistic controversy, you have Pfeffinger, who I believe was at Leipzig, um, uh, Flatius at that point was at Jena, so these are university professors. Um, this is going to be kind of an intercollegial dispute um, at the University of Jena, where Flacius was teaching at that time. Um, the deposed elector of Saxony, who now um, had a smaller territory and had lost the University of Wittenberg after the Small Celtic League was uh, defeated, he starts this new university in Jena. A number of Gnasio Lutherans end up there, um, and Flacius is going to have a, a a colleague named Strigel, who is going to have issues with Flacius probably on a number of things. Um, Strigel is not necessarily a Gnasio Lutheran. Um, he appears to have, you know, the equivalent of today saw Flacius' paycheck and maybe Flacius was making more than Strigel thought he should. In the faculty parade, apparently Flacius got to walk further ahead in line than Strigel thought he should have. Um, but this becomes an impor important debate over... Um, original sin in, in the free will. And Flacius gets tasked with, he gets tasked by the university, um, by the, the, the prince, um, with making peace on this, um, where Strigel had been accused of, of speaking inappropriately. And the big debate becomes, uh, is original sin in Aristotelian language an accident or a substance? Right? Um, and, and here... Uh, an accident is something that is kind of defines me, but I can still be me without that thing. So Mike still has a beautiful head of hair, right? Um, I used to have a nice head of hair. Mike, you remember me mm -hmm. back in college when I had hair. It was, uh, mm -hmm. I could run my fingers through. I don't think you ever read, ran your fingers through it. That would have mm -hmm. been odd. Um, but now I don't, but I'm still Wade, mm -hmm. right? Um, Mike doesn't see me and say, you're not really you anymore. There's no continuity of being. You're not Wade. Um, Mike and I have both uh, probably had pant sizes go up and down and back and forth. Um, our pant size is not essential to who we are. God forbid one of us could lose a finger or an arm and we'd still be us. Now, for right now, for both Mike and I, having two arms is somewhat definitional of who we are. If someone's like, Oh, who's Mike? I'd be like, well, he's got really good hair and two arms, mm -hmm. you know, and that that's a valid description. Uh, but it's those things aren't substantial to us to be essential or substantial to something means you can't be that thing without that. So Mike's soul is essential to who he is. Take away Mike's soul and, and he's not Mike anymore. 
Uh, and so the question became, is original sin substantial or essential, another way of saying it, or is it accidental? And Strigel's going to say it's accidental. So it's just incidental to what, uh, who someone is. And Flacius is going to use Luther language, as Amsdor did on good works, but not with Luther's clarity. Um, and Luther's not using it in an Aristotelian way. Flacius is going to say it is nature. It's who we are as a human being. And the problem with this is, well, then does that mean Christ had to have had original sin to be human? Flacius never asserts that. Mm -hmm. um, and he talks about formal and material substance. But the biggest error here is that Aristotle gets brought back into... Um, uh, You're shoehorning shoe scripture into, into categories. It's like square pegs into round holes. Yep. And Strigel definitely was using this language to downplay original sin. So Flacius is, understands the importance of it. But this becomes another debate then that goes back to the bondage of the will and something that Luther had tried to be very clear on. So here I would say Flacius defends the right position, but in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And then, then stubbornness kicks in and he just refuses to back down on his language uh, to his deathbed. Um, but this last debate on original sin will be very important then. Um, and notice this is a this is a basic teaching in Luther's theology that there's going to be a lot of debate back and forth. Now, the form of Concord is going to side with Luther's position. It's going to side with what Luther, what Flacius is even trying to defend, but it is going to say Flacius' language isn't good. It's not going to name him, right? You could tell that they're somewhat sympathetic that he was trying to do the right thing, um, but it's going to say it's not substantial. We can't say that, and here's why. I um, mean, here sometimes we'll talk about Manichaeism, that we don't want to present like this dualism we won't get lost on that but that term might come up in there mike um i'll just throw it to you real quick why why is in your view anything that stands out about why this original sin debate would be important any application for today or anything that comes oh sure so i mean if you take if you if you downplay original sin and you say it's just it just happens and and this will get you into a couple of of pitfalls um one is you can start thinking well, I'm actually just a good person that I can overcome these things. Um, you can start seeing people in a in a a fairly, I would say, arrogant way. Why can't that person yep. just get their life together? And you would th this is what's counterintuitive, and I love this point, Mike. You would think having a low view of original sin would give you a higher view of people, mm -hmm. but it tends to be having a low view of original sin actually makes you less merciful to your right. neighbor. And there's a reason why the Protestant work ethic was not called the Lutheran work ethic. Yeah. Um, but if you talk in the way that Flacius did there, and, and he tries to massage this with different types of uh, uh, descriptors, different categories of what is substance and what is, or essential and what is accidental. But if you imply that, <clears throat> that, the very nature of being a human being is sinful, then God made something sinful. Or Jesus Christ is then either not true human being or he is actually sinful. Now, of course, he's not going to go that far. But here's the other implication. It, it implies that the body is kind of right. bad. And, and this physical world's not kind. And, so we, and it can lean towards a, when we talk about total depravity, this notion that every inch and every part of every person is is bad all the time which diminishes the goodness of god's creation 
there's even the worst sinners are capable of some good things yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, it's a very it it is going too far, right? And then I, I suppose you could say I have it. So do I have a different substance in heaven? Then I mean, you got problems with identity there. You got right. problems with. Uh, you know, the, the, maybe even if you push it too far, what about the bodily resurrection? I mean, it, it just opens up too many questions. But I think the main point is to say that this physical world's not a gift. It's not beautiful. It's not wonderful. Yes, it's corrupted, but it's still gift. It is to maybe despair too much right. in, into that way. And so, yeah, I think that, that it, is, it is problematic, but we totally get where Flacius is coming from. Don't tell me that to be a human being post-fall, that a part of their nature is not sin. Yeah. <laughs> because that is that is even more problematic. And, and, and notice, part of the reason as we look at this chronologically in the book, you can understand why Flacius and other Gnasio Lutherans would notice this trajectory. This trajectory, notice all the way along, has been confusion about free will, confusion about good works, confusion about justification. Now, confusion about original sin. We can understand that he would see... Um, what the devil was trying to do behind this. Maybe as we wrap up the book, then I just want to reemphasize, um, the reason we use this book at the end is, is not just because it's a book I've written, uh, but because this gives us, us an example of how the process of confessionalization could play out. And we do it in the theological territory closest to us as a college and closest to me as a Lutheran historian and theologian, um, which is within the Lutheran Church. But we see the second generation of reformers contending with each other. Um, we see church and state tensions, who should control the church, who should determine doctrine. And so to kind of unpack what we had in Lindbergh chapter 15. I hope you find this useful, both students and listeners. Um, for Theology 442, this will wrap up our COVID-19 online learning series. Um, for listeners, if you have any questions, feel free to let us know. We're happy to get back to you. And Mike, you got anything else? No, just we we've been we've been kind of hinting at this man, but never said his by name. But Martin Chemnitz, and yep. we talked about the formula of Concord, and kind of maybe the 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 end, the capstone of this this period, right? And it is good news. And 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 I was thinking about Flacius too, like. To live in that time, you must have been, all of this is going to be lost. Yep. And all, that's what they thought. All of this is going to be lost. And so there had to be this process of, as you said, a confessionalization. Uh, there had to be like, we need to put, we need to put pen to paper. So many people had died for this. I get so worked up when people, we just believe in the Bible. Shut up. You, you, you got to put pen to paper and be precise about this. You're making a confession every time that you speak, Right. And so I think that, that that idea of a confessionalization, you have to put paper to pen, you have to confess. And then for the Lutherans, this uh, process comes at the end of the second Martin, Martin Chemnitz, who's a main author of the book or the, the formula of Concord. So thanks for listening, students. Uh, until we see each other face to face, let the bird fly.